Lord God, we thank you so much for your church, for the body of Christ, for his bride, for what it means to be a part of a community that loves you and pursues you and, and uh, understands the grace that comes with repentance and, and hates sin and desires to be like you and be with you. And I thank you for a community of people to share those similar affections with. So I pray that today as we study your word together, Lord, that you would bless us richly, that this wouldn't be just some religious motion that we go to, but we would truly see ourselves in your presence, worshiping you, honoring you, being blessed by you, and being ministered to by you. So we just give you thanks for your word, that you're a God who has revealed himself to us through scripture and through your son Jesus, and we thank you for the way that you have blessed us so richly with things like your word and your body, uh, other believers in this time together. And so we just honor you, we praise you this morning, and, and ask that you would come and bless us today. Amen. Um, I would love for you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. If you uh, don't own a Bible, maybe you're a visitor with us this morning, we would love to give you a Bible. So if that's something you need, you can connect with Amber in the back of the room there after the service at what we call our bookstore. It's very fancy. You can't miss it. It's a table with books on it in the back. Um, Luke chapter 9, while you're turning there, that's where we're going to be kind of studying this morning. I want to start with just a bit of a story. Uh, If you're a student of history or maybe a Shakespeare fan, you'll probably recall the name King Henry VIII. If you're not a Shakespeare fan or a history buff, then that's okay, I'll fill you in. King Henry VIII was a majestic king, a king of England, who brought sweeping changes to the nation of England because of his hunger for authority and power to basically do whatever he wanted unchecked. And he was a king who actually abused his sovereign power as he pursued what, whatever pleased him. Uh, he reveled in his majesty over his kingdom, and he exploited it to the fullest. He ruled from 1509 to 1547, and he's known to history for kind of three primarily um, notorious things. First of all, he made radical changes to the English constitution by creating the divine right of kings, which was a political document that asserted that the English king was subject to no earthly authority. He ruled by direct divine will of God, okay? He was not accountable to his people. He was not accountable to the Pope, who was sort of the, the greatest earthly authority at that point. He didn't find himself accountable to the church or any other authority. He was majestic in the supreme. Okay? Second, Henry VIII, known for directly rebelling against the authority of the Pope and creating his own church, the Church of England. He created his own church because of the third reason that he's notorious, which is that he was a sexually promiscuous fellow who wanted power to continue in his sexual promiscuity without any consequences or accountability for his actions. He wanted to control the church so that he could continue in his sexual sin and essentially be endorsed by the church in that. And there were few people that uh, lived in England who were willing to stand up to King Henry VIII in his power and authority because he had this fondness for executing political dissidents. 
There was one man, however, who found himself with the courage to challenge Henry VIII, and his name was Hugh Latimer. And he was a professor at Cambridge University. I would be surprised if any of you have actually ever heard of him. He was also a preacher. And despite the political consequences, Latimer was no quiet critic of King Henry VIII. He vocally called out the king specifically for his sexual sin. And there's a story that recounts on one occasion when King Henry VIII, for some reason, actually invited Latimer to come to his royal court and preach at the king's church. And he would be preaching before the the king in all of his majesty, the king himself. And Latimer, uncompromising fellow that he was, he chose a text to preach on through which he could actually denounce the king in his immorality to his face. And he preached his message to the king, and upon hearing Latimer preach uh, his sermon, King Henry VIII, he was uh, obviously furious at what Latimer had to say. But he had had this sermon preached before his royal court, and so in order to undo the damage that had been done to his character by Latimer, uh, Henry demanded that Latimer come back the following week and preach again and recant his scathing denunciation of the king, undo what he had done. Henry told his servants, make sure that Latimer understands the gravity of the situation that he has found himself in. That Latimer remember before whom he would be preaching, King Henry VIII, sovereign majesty of all the lands of England, with power to kill or imprison those who stand in opposition to him. Emphasis on kill, probably. So Latimer, with this warning, he returned the following week, well informed of the danger that he found himself in. And he began his sermon something like this. Hugh Latimer... Dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, King Henry VIII, most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. And he continued, Hugh Latimer, consider well, dost thou know upon whose message thou art sent? Even the great and mighty God, sovereign majesty of all creation, who beholdeth all thy ways and is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, Hugh Latimer, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And then Latimer proceeded to preach the very same message that he preached the week before. Gutsy move, right? Now, Uh, amazingly, surprisingly, Latimer didn't lose his life that day. King Henry VIII was so impressed by his courage, by his bravado, that the king actually let him live. But later, Latimer did actually die at the hands of royalty. Later in his life, he was burned at the stake by Queen Mary because he refused to recant his Protestant Christian faith and convert to Catholicism. And there's a man with conviction willing to be burned to death for what he believes rather than abandon his love for Jesus. But Latimer, he was faithful in preaching before King Henry VIII and faithful even in being burned at the stake before Queen Mary because he understood one very important principle. Simple. The majesty of kings is great, but the majesty of Jesus is far greater. And we spent last week taking a look at the transfiguration of Jesus, a glimpse in the majesty of Jesus on the mountaintop. 
And Peter and James and John, they saw the glory of Jesus when they went with him and ascended this mountain, his majesty on the mountain. And I think that every Christian, hopefully at various points in their Christian faith, is graciously blessed by God to have their faith bolstered by these times of clarity. When they ascend sort of a spiritual mountaintop and God reveals himself to them in high definition. Every believer, I believe, has moments in their life, seasons that they go through, when they clearly see the majesty of Jesus on the mountaintop. And those moments when Jesus is clear for who he is in the best of times, and thank God that God gives us those moments, those mountaintops in our fellowship with him. But unfortunately, in this life, we don't get to stay there. Maybe you know that from experience. There comes a time when we have to descend from the mountaintop back into the realities of what I'm going to call the valley. And yet, even in the valley, understand, Jesus remains majestic. And that's the reality of what Peter and James and John are going to see today as we look at our text in Luke 9. So read this with me. I'm going to start in verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Okay, we have a tendency, I think probably because of these headers and verses and chapters, to sort of read the stories of Jesus episodically like watching a sitcom where the characters are the same, but from week to week, the story changes a little bit. But I don't think that's what Luke intended when he wrote this, and I certainly don't think that's how God intends for us to read his word, chopping it up into these disconnected pieces where it doesn't really fit together with a flow. It's very significant that this story in Luke is placed right after the story of Jesus in majesty on the mountain. And as wonderful as it is to have points in our life where we clearly see Christ for who he is in all of his glory, the truth is, eventually we have to come down the mountaintop and we find ourselves in the valley. This place where there's darkness, where there's spiritual struggle, where we're doing battle with sin and with evil. But even here, what we see is that the majesty of Jesus is constant. Whether on the mountaintop or in the valley, Christ is the same. And whatever our circumstances may be, Christ remains sovereign. He never changes. He never falters. But if we look at the disciples, we see they make a very common mistake here. Remember, Jesus has been away from most of the disciples. He went up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And while he was gone, this poor man brought his demon-possessed son to see the Messiah. Now, I've been through some dark moments in my life that I could tell you about, some serious valleys, but I cannot imagine a greater trial than the difficulty of watching one of my children suffer. 
And if I were this man, I would be crushed by seeing my son in this state. And I, I think the man uses a very telling word in verse 39 when he describes what happens to his son. He says, the evil spirit shatters him, shatters him. The darkness of this valley, it shatters his son, and it shatters their family, and it certainly shatters the peace and the hope and the security that this man feels. But in the midst of his suffering, he receives some good news. He hears about Jesus, a great man, maybe a prophet, a teacher, a healer, a man of power, empowered by God to restore those who are shattered, those who are oppressed by demons and the darkness. And so this man gathers his things and he takes his son and he seeks out Jesus looking for help. But in the end, the results are less than satisfying. Instead of finding Jesus, he finds only the disciples of Jesus. And this is where we find our mistake. Verse 40, the man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, I don't think the disciples realized that they were in a valley. They were just going about their everyday uh, schedule, I guess. But the presence of Jesus, it wasn't immediately available to them. Remember, he was away up on the mountaintop. He had ascended with Peter and James and John. And so the disciples must have thought in this moment, we're left to our own devices. We have to figure this out on our own. They believed that in this valley it had fallen upon them to heal this man's son. Jesus was gone, and so they were going to stand in the gap in his absence. And so apart from the presence of Christ, they mustered all of the strength that they could, and they tried their best to cast this demon out of the boy, and the result was they failed. And Luke doesn't mention this point, but if we were to look at this story in Mark 9, verse 29, Jesus explains to them why they failed. And he says that this kind of demonic oppression is only overcome through prayer. And Matthew, as he tells the story in 1720, he tells us that they failed because of their lack of faith. And the point is this. Whatever it was that the disciples did in their efforts to cast out this demon, they did it apart from the power of God. They tried without the presence of Jesus, and they tried without prayer. And in essence, they tried with their own strength, their own power, their own abilities, which is why Jesus chides them in verse 41. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? He's speaking to his disciples. After all of the power and authority that they have witnessed Jesus use in his ministry, the disciples in this moment, they fail to pray and have faith in God to deal with this problem. And they made the same mistake that we often make, especially in the valley when things are hard. God seems distant from us when we're in the darkness of the valley. He seems far away from us when we're feeling spiritually oppressed and we're doing battle with evil in this world. He feels far away in our despair when the world is shattering around us. His presence isn't felt because we tend to only feel him on the mountaintops, right? And so in what appears to be the absence of his presence, we do what's natural. We turn from the majesty of the power of God to our own power. He seems absent, and so we take matters into our own hands. We fail to place our faith and our trust and our hope and our belief in him. And we give it the old college try, right? Lift ourselves up from the bootstraps. Because in the valley where God feels distant, we feel like we're left to fix things on our own. 
And if you've been through this and you've tried to fix it on your own in the valley, when God feels far away, then maybe you've learned the lesson that the disciples learned. The result of our unbelief is powerlessness. Powerlessness. Without Christ at work in us and through us, we can do nothing. We are guaranteed to fail. Jesus explicitly says it in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the less the disciples relied on Jesus, the less power they had. And the same is absolutely true for us. And often when we're in the valley, when we're in life's most difficult seasons, those are the times when we most need to experience the power of Jesus. But ironically, rather than seek him out, we grasp for other things to help us. False gods or petty comforts, and we fall prey to the sin of unbelief. We become faithless and twisted in our thinking. We try to deal with the struggles of life in our own strength and our own power. And if you've been there, you know how hopeless it is. Of course, we fail. Because the result of our, power, of our unbelief is powerlessness. And without Jesus, we can do nothing. Okay, now I want you to look with me for a moment at Jesus like Steve taught a couple of weeks ago. I want us to refocus on Christ. And I want you to see something here from Scripture about him. Luke puts these stories of Jesus on the mountain and Jesus casting out demons in the valley side by side for a reason. If you'll turn with me to 2 Peter 1.16. It's to the right in your Bible. It's past Hebrews. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Luke wasn't there for these scenes, and so I wonder if he got some of his story from Peter who was there. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16, Peter writes this, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was on the mountaintop with Jesus, and in this short section of Second Peter, he describes what he saw. Verse 16 again, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And here Peter uses the very same word that Luke uses in verse 43 of chapter 9. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So a picture of Jesus begins to come into focus. On the mountaintop, we see the majesty of Jesus in all of his power. We see who Jesus is. And then we travel down the mountain into the struggles of life, into the valley, and it begins to look dark. It begins to look hopeless. And yet even here, we see the majesty of Jesus displayed in all that he does. And so we find this principle at work. Who God is on the mountaintop guarantees what he will do in the valley. Remember this for the dark days that might be ahead of you at some point. Who God is on the mountain, glorious and majestic, guarantees what he will do 
in the valley, work for our good, even in the midst of the trials. And if Jesus is majestic in the best of times, then he is also majestic in the worst of times. If he has power on the mountaintop, then he has power in the valley. And this truth should have led the disciples to pray and to reach out to God in faith and to trust in him. And for us, it should drive us deeper to prayer, to greater faith. At the highest highs of your Christian life, on the mountaintops, Jesus reigns in majesty. So seek him then and there. And at the lowest lows of your Christian life, in the darkest valleys, Jesus reigns in majesty. And so cry out to him. Pray and trust him then and there. Remember who he is from the mountaintop and be confident that who he is on the mountaintop guarantees that he will remain powerful and faithful even in the darkness of the valley as you find yourself there. And whatever you do, don't take your eyes off him. Don't let your faith fade. Don't fall prey to the powerlessness of unbelief. Remember his majesty on the mountain so you can persevere in power through the valley. And your circumstances may change and the darkness may get darker, but none of that affects the power of God to work for your good as you go through these circumstances. We're going to read just a little bit further in our text from Luke because I believe that Luke kind of ties this all together in the next two verses. He sort of completes this picture of the majesty of Jesus. Let me read verses 43 through 45, and I'm actually going to start at the beginning of 43. It says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So all of the people who've seen Jesus do this miracle, they're standing around with the disciples and they're just marveling at what they have witnessed, astonished at the majesty of Jesus. His power over demons and darkness and evil. And then in the very midst of their celebrating, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And if I was a disciple, I think I would have been tempted to cry out, Man, Jesus, you're such a buzzkill. Seriously. Can't you let us just enjoy this moment? But in reality, Jesus is offering his disciples a wonderful blessing when he says this. I believe that he's taking advantage of the moment to encourage the disciples for the future, to remind them of exactly what I've been saying this morning about who he is. He isn't trying to ruin the party. He isn't trying to be a buzzkill. He's trying to prepare them for an even greater valley ahead of them. In essence, he's saying, don't forget, don't forget that I am majestic on the mountain. And I am majestic in the valley. And I remain majestic on the cross. You've seen my glory on the mountaintop. You've seen my glory in the valley. And remember these things when you see me crucified. Because even the horror of the cross cannot diminish my power or glory. And in our struggles, in our trials, in our sufferings, that's where our hearts need to go to for comfort. 
The Christian can endure all things, whether it's the most exalted mountaintop or the darkest valley. Even the shame of the cross we can endure because Christ remains the king of majesty in any circumstance. And whatever we suffer, that fact endures. And so we find ourselves back at Hugh Latimer and we understand where a man like that finds the courage to stand against the king at such a great risk to his life. And we understand how later, being tied to a stake, standing on a great pile of wood with the kindling lit for his execution, Latimer had the courage to stand for Christ. Even with a painful, slow death by burning, Latimer was unwilling to back down from his faith in the majesty of Christ. He held his convictions that it's not our works that save, but Christ alone. It's not the Pope who leads us, but Christ alone. It's not the wisdom of man that enlightens us, but the word of God himself. And that courage came from looking to Christ and his victory on the cross. And so here's my point. There's no sphere of reality where Jesus does not reign in majesty. The problem is, like the disciples, that we don't go to him. In the times of trial, we don't place the fullness of our trust in him. We don't remember him. We don't pray to him. We don't rely on him in his power. But let us as a church, let Maricopa Springs, please not be called a faithless and twisted generation. Having a tendency to forget God and trust in ourselves. Instead, let us, if, let us follow the example of Christ that he has set for us who having the power and the authority to strike down demons and evil and even the entire Roman army as he was on his way to the cross. Instead, Christ entrusted himself fully into the hands of the Father. How could Jesus say with such courage and conviction, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. How could Jesus live the entirety of his life knowing that before him, his climactic end would be the cross? Because Christ had faith in the majesty of God. He knew the power of God and he knew that even the cross could not diminish God's power or glory. And we have been given the gift of the spirit of Christ alive inside of us that empowers us to share the very same faith of Christ so that we too can endure whatever season we might find ourselves in. And so in whatever season we are, only let us pray. Let us trust in him. Let us put our hope in his power and not our own power. Whether we're given the great gift of seeing his majesty on the mountain, or whether we're given the great gift of seeing his majesty in the valley, let us look to the cross for hope. Let us pray to God for the power of Christ Jesus to give us hope and power and strength and victory in whatever season we find ourselves in. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who not only set an example for us, who went to the cross willingly, trusting himself into your hands. We thank you for that example. But we thank you even more for his spirit that now lives inside of us, that empowers us to share in his faith. And Lord, we thank you that your son 
remains majestic, that he was majestic in the transfiguration on the mountain, that he remained so in the darkness of the valley, in his power to overcome evil and sin and death. And we thank you that he carried that majesty to the cross. And from the cross into his resurrection where he is now seated with you in glory. And we worship you for these things, Father. We thank you for the majesty of Christ. Give us the gift of faith that we might trust you in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. We love you, Father. Amen.